Welcome to the Sorrel and Roots podcast, journeying together into deep discipleship. I'm Brian Fisher. This is episode 24, The World is Best as I Remember It, volume 1. If you haven't already done so, make sure to head over to the sorrelandroots.org site and sign up for our weekly email newsletter. I send out thoughts on spiritual formation, deep discipleship, and how we grow in our friendship with Jesus and community. We're around in the corner now on season two. Thanks so much for taking this journey with us to explore the discipleship dilemma. We're finishing up this season with two final episodes that tie up some things together before we head into season three. Back in season one, we identified a major concern, what Dallas Willard called the great omission. Modern Christianity isn't making genuine disciples. It may be making converts, it may be making knowledgeable Christians, but it struggles to make people who think and act and relate and love like Jesus. We're formed to be more like Jesus the more we become friends with Jesus, but that isn't generally the narrative we hear or embrace. In our era, we face three additional problems that work against this spiritual formation. The forgotten kingdom, the discipleship dilemma, and the formation gap. Now, The good news is all three problems have fairly straightforward solutions, enabling us to reconnect with God and others and ourselves and creation and culture. This more that many of our hearts find missing can be found. The problem we've been exploring all this season, the discipleship dilemma, brings up some questions about what type of person actually engages in intentional spiritual formation. I've been following Jesus for most of my life, and yet for the most part, I actually listen to very little Christian music anymore. I grew up listening to it, and as a musician, I've played a ton of it, and I even worked in that industry for a few years back in the day, so why would a lifelong Christian not be into Christian music? Well, because much of modern Christian music has lost its curiosity. Christian music no longer asks why. That's what great artists are. They're curious. Painters, sculptors, writers, musicians. That's what great scientists are. They're curious. They're explorers. The field of science was originally birthed by people asking why. You wouldn't know it today, but virtually all of the great names associated with the birth of modern science were possessed by a curiosity to understand how God created. They accepted God's existence as a matter of fact. Curiosity is the doorway to depth, and depth is the pathway to growth. The titles of this and the next episode are a tip of the hat to a wonderful poet, musician, and thinker, the late Rich Mullins. He was a complex and sometimes controversial figure, but his music, his ideas, his words persist today a few decades after his death. And hey, he played the hammer dulcimer, so come on. I'm going to read a few lyrics from one of his songs, one of my favorite songs, called If I Stand. It remains one of my most favorite and compelling, authentic, and curious Christian songs written in the past several decades. So here we go. There's more that rises in the morning than the sun. More that shines in the night than just the moon. It's more than just this fire here that keeps me warm in a shelter that's larger than this room. And there's a loyalty that's deeper than mere sentiments and a music higher than the songs that I can sing. The stuff of earth competes for the allegiance I owe only to the giver of all good things. So if I stand, let me stand on the promise that you will pull me through. And if I can't, let me fall on the grace that first brought me to you. And if I sing, let me sing for the joy that is born in me these songs. And if I weep, 
Let it be as a man who's longing for his home. We could explore and debate just this one section for weeks. Unlike most music today, Mullins didn't answer every question. He wasn't content with simplicity, and he didn't put words on a page simply because they rhymed or sounded like a Bible verse. He left a lot of ideas on the table. He invited the listener to join him as he explored. He invited their curiosity. He was at times uncomfortably real and transparent, but he invited us to be the same. Mullins wasn't really a performer, per se. He wasn't an artist trying to score a huge contract or a big record deal. Most of what he did make, he gave away. He survived on a meager salary. He was a Christian musician before all of the Christian music companies were gobbled up in worldwide conglomerates. He was an intensely curious, passionate poet. He was an artist. Why do I mention him? Well, because music tends to reflect culture. If Christian music has truly become formulaic and at times pretty shallow, we should see that as a reflection of us. But the essence of heart view is what Rich Mullins modeled, a courageous curiosity. When we sit with God and a trusted friend to answer questions about why we are the way we are, we're inviting God and others to engage in genuine discipleship. I find Jesus to be a man who continually invites those around him to be curious, he invited heart exploration. Times he seemed to demand it. He was constantly exploring people's motivations, their faith, their doubts. He had an uncanny ability to pick up on the true desire of people's hearts, and he regularly told them what they were. It's actually extraordinary. So why don't we engage in this exploration of our hearts, this heart view, more often? Why aren't we courageously curious about the depths of our own hearts? Why don't we intentionally sit down with our spouse or friend and prayerfully ask some, you know, admittedly difficult questions like these? Why do I struggle with anxiety? Why am I so fearful about the future? Why do I get emotionally triggered when someone does this or that? Why am I emotionally numb? Why do I hoard my money? Or why do I spend all of my money? Why do I struggle to form deeper friendships? Why do I seem to give myself to anyone and everyone? Why do I try to take control of everything? If we truly want to become more like Jesus, these are the types of questions we might ask. Because it's pretty easy to look at Jesus in light of those same questions and consider how he would have answered them. So why did Jesus struggle with anxiety? He didn't. Why was Jesus fearful about the future? He wasn't. Why did Jesus get emotionally triggered when someone did this or that? Well, when he reacted emotionally, it was always from a sense of compassion or justice in the highest sense of those words. Why was Jesus emotionally numb? Well, he certainly wasn't that. Why did Jesus hoard money? He didn't. Why did Jesus spend all of his money? He didn't. He didn't seem all that concerned with money himself, though he certainly taught on it. He just trusted that his father would provide his needs. Why did Jesus struggle to form deeper friendships? Well, he didn't. But he was certainly careful about who he gave his heart to. Why did Jesus seem to give himself over to anyone and everyone? He didn't. The Bible is clear that Jesus discerned the hearts of those around him. In some cases, he was intensely and even uncomfortably vulnerable, but in other cases, he just walked away from people and refused to give himself to them. Why did Jesus try to take control over everything? He didn't. He did the will of his Father. If we want to be like Jesus, we should be intensely curious about ourselves and intensely curious about him. We can't become like someone we don't know. 
and we can't become like someone else if we don't know ourselves. So why might we be reluctant to explore these eight indicators with God and friends so that we can become more like Jesus? Well, here's just a few thoughts. It's intensely personal, and it's hard. Remember this A.W. Tozer's quote, the quote that's basically fundamental to this entire podcast series. He said this, that our idea of God corresponds as nearly as possible to the true being of God is of immense importance to us. Compared with our actual thoughts about him, our creedal statements are of little consequence. Our real idea of God may lie buried under the rubbish of conventional religious notions and may require an intelligent and vigorous search before it is finally unearthed and exposed for what it is. Only after an ordeal of painful self-probing are we likely to discover what we actually believe about God. End quote. Painful self-probing. Well... Who wants to do that today? Here's another reason we may not engage in Heartview technology. If we want to answer a question, we just consult the Oracle. And by the Oracle, I mean Google. We have instant information at our fingertips at any time of day or night. We are so formed into the idea that answers are quick and easy, we have forgotten that human beings aren't quick, and we sure as heck aren't very easy to understand. I'm not a Luddite. I don't think we should retreat to the pre-industrial era like some M. Night Shyamalan movie. I am saying that while technology brings incredible benefits, it's undeniable that it has also brought extraordinary pain, suffering, and isolation. Just consult the Oracle. Google something like sociological impact of technology on children. We're so used to instant answers and instant everything, we forget that exploring the heart of Jesus and our own hearts is a lifelong usually slow journey. A third reason we struggle with heart view is the loss of true Christian community, as I mentioned a few minutes ago. Modern Christianity is part of modern society. It looks very little like the New Testament church. And that's led to some incredibly damaging ideas and assumptions that continue to plague churches and Christian communities today. So when you combine the fact that heart view is hard, it's difficult, and we don't like difficult, Technology has numbed much of our curiosity, and most Christians don't even have a frame of reference for biblical community. Heartview doesn't even cross our radar. That means that while we don't struggle to accumulate biblical information, we do struggle to become more like Jesus. We struggle to experience the more that the Christian life has to offer. We struggle for a deeper connection to God and others and even our own hearts. But there are even some deeper reasons why we need to recapture heart view as the primary means of discipleship, and they have to do with ideas in the air. If you're able, pull up the picture called Creation Picture 2, Creation Picture 2, from the Resources tab at SoilandRoots.org. We originally looked at this back in episode 17. You can see in the picture that ideas exist in two locations, ideas in the air and ideas in the soil. So the ideas in our soil are embraced by our hearts, primarily because of our stories. Ideas in the air exist primarily because of culture, sometimes creation. So what are ideas in the air like? I was in a group discussion a few weeks ago and someone mentioned that we are all born into cultures that have built-in assumptions and conclusions that no one questions. It's like asking a fish what they think of being wet all the time. The fish wouldn't know how to answer the question. He doesn't know he's wet. It's just the reality he's born into. That's precisely what I mean when we talk about ideas in the air. Unconscious principles and assumptions that we're born into and assume without thinking about it. 
Ideas in the air are like the air we breathe. But ideas in the air aren't there by accident, and they aren't formed overnight. The ideas in the air today are actually the result of a 2,000-year journey. So let's take a quick trip through a few millennia of Western thought. There are various ways to categorize the last 2,000 years of Western history, but let's just break it down into four main periods. First, ancient history. Uh, basically, that's everything from the beginning of recorded history to around 500 AD, ancient history. Then we have the medieval period. That's generally considered 500 to 1500 AD, that 1,000-year block. Then we have the modern era. That's roughly 1500 to the 1950s. And we're living in the postmodern era, the 1950s to the present. Okay, ancient history, the beginning of what we know about to around 500, the medieval period, 500 to 1500, the modern era, 1500 to the 1950s, and the postmodern era, 1950s to right now. Let's just keep those in the back of our minds. There's a great thinker and author named Glenn Sunshine who wrote a book called Why You Think the Way You Do. Besides having the world's best last name, he has done the Christian community a ginormous favor by tracing the history of Western thought from the time of Christ until now. He approaches his book from a worldview perspective, but he also uses some of the type of language we use here. He talks about the governing ideas and assumptions that impact entire cultures. Those are what you and I call ideas in the air. Sunshine writes about the power and influence of ideas in the air and how they've changed through these four major periods of Western thought. So let's start with the time of Christ, ancient history. We're not going to go that deep into the weeds, but Sunshine maintains that the hybrid Greek-Roman influences of the time of Christ created a culture based on the idea of hierarchy. Quote, The higher up on the hierarchy you are, the more authority you have over the things that are below you, and the more rights and privileges you can claim for yourself. Herbivores can demand the lives of plants for their food. Carnivores can take the lives of the herbivores. Humanity can kill them both. And the gods can demand whatever sacrifices they want from humans. End quote. And in the context of the human race, the idea of hierarchy persisted. Most of the time, it was men in power who ruled over everyone else. The history of various civilizations included human sacrifice, and that influenced Rome who still held a very low view of human life at the time of Christ, particularly women and children. And they engaged in things like gladiatorial games as a means of sport and entertainment that usually resulted in the blatant loss of life. The Roman Empire had its gods, although those gods were petty, times cruel, and often disinterested in the affairs of men. Still, the people of that age unconsciously assumed that higher powers, gods, were responsible for creating the world and placing them in it. Humans unconsciously assume they were not the originators of the earth and that there was some sort of divine presence that wasn't them. Now Christianity turned the Greco-Roman ideas upside down. Unlike their gods, the Christian God created the world for goodness. He placed mankind in it to flourish. In fact, he wanted to co-rule it with them. And he is deeply interested and evolved in the affairs of men for our benefit. Though it would take hundreds of years, Christianity radically changed those underlying unconscious ideas of Western culture. By the Middle Ages, people born into that era were ushered into an entirely different set of cultural assumptions. So let's zoom to the Middle Ages, 500 to 1500. Despite the fact many people think it was only characterized by misery and the Black Plague, this is not true. 
Glenn Sunshine writes, quote, Far from being a stagnant, backwards era, the nearly thousand years that made up the Middle Ages were in fact a dynamic period that laid the foundation for Western civilization. The medieval assumed that the world was real, that it was created by God with its own integrity, but that it also mirrors God's nature and character. We as beings made in the image of God can understand the world, and thus we can learn both by studying the world itself and by using our reason to interpret the world and its significance. Since the world was created by a good God and reflects his nature, it's also inherently moral. We can learn moral lessons from the universe, and our laws must conform to natural moral law, end quote. Let's not miss the things that Sunshine says characterize the unconscious assumptions of someone living in the Middle Ages were made in the image of God. The world reflects God's nature and character and can be studied to learn more about him. And the world itself is inherently moral. Well, then came the age of modernity. Back in episode 15, we explored Rod Dreher's comments on the major events that drastically altered medieval assumptions through the 500 years or so of the modern era. Dreher said humanity lost the belief in the connection between God and creation in the 1300s. Then came the Protestant Reformation in the 1500s, which brought about the collapse of religious unity and authority. That was followed by the Enlightenment in the 1700s, which began to privatize religious life and remove it from the rest of reality. Then the Industrial Revolution brought about tumultuous changes in all aspects of society and family and community. And then came the sexual revolution in the 1960s, and that promoted the idea that our identity is not found in God or even in our humanity. It's found primarily in our sexuality. Which brings us to the postmodern era starting in 1950. Postmodernism is essentially founded on the idea that there is no truth or that truth can be defined by the individual. It's skeptical. It asks questions but doesn't expect truthful answers because it questions the existence of any real truth. Most of us have been born into postmodernism. That's the air we breathe. But this type of air is actually new in Western civilization. When God is dead, truth is relative, and our existence is futile, one thing rises from the ashes of three previous periods of history. The self. Carl Truman wrote a fascinating book called Strange New World, and he explores the postmodern notion of self. He writes, quote, I'm referring not to this common sense way of using the term, but rather to the deeper notion of where the real me is found, how that shapes my view of life, and in what the fullness of happiness of that real me consists. He goes on, the modern self assumes the authority of inner feelings and sees authenticity as defined by the ability to give social expression to the same. The modern self also assumes that society at large will recognize and affirm this behavior, end quote. In postmodernism, the real me is what Truman refers to as inner feelings. I don't think he's talking about emotions the way that we do here as indicators of what's going on in our hearts. Truman almost equates inner feelings with our desires. So the real me are my desires, whether those desires are good or bad. Remember, in postmodernism, there is no good or bad. So the postmodernist unconsciously assumes that her authentic self is her desires and how she feels about them. It's what makes her authentic. And those desires must be recognized and affirmed by society. Otherwise, she's no longer authentic. 
So for what it's worth, I'm going to try to add to this conversation a bit and go one step beyond Sunshine and Truman. Note that back in the time of Christ's birth, human beings placed little value on other human beings. They also assumed some sort of divine beings created the world and placed them in it. Though pharaohs and some other kings assigned divinity to themselves, the average Joe assumed they were not gods, could not claim that type of authority, and saw themselves fitting into a world that they didn't create. Because of the dramatic influence of Christianity, the medievalists placed a very high value on human beings and saw God's presence and mark on everything, not just the Bible, but every human being in every speck of creation. But over the last 500 years, the unconscious assumptions of Western civilization have dramatically changed again. We have lost most of the assumptions of the Middle Ages. We no longer unconsciously assume there is a God or gods who created us and the earth. Darwin's theory of evolution has dispelled that idea in many hearts and minds. We're here by chance. Unlike all of the previous periods we've looked at, we are the first age to unconsciously assume there is no divine power that created the earth and that gives us purpose. Well, what's left? We all worship something. So what do we worship in the absence of any type of God? You might be thinking, well, we worship ourselves. That's true, but why do we unconsciously assume we're worthy of worship? It's not just that the modern human believes she has the right to live according to her inner feelings. It's that she unconsciously assumes she's divine. The war of ideas in Western culture is not just over creation versus evolution, or socialism versus capitalism, or sexuality, or gender. It's a war over who gets to define reality, meaning it's a war over claims of divinity. If we're divine, can we not choose who lives and dies? If that old person no longer serves society, kill him. That baby is going to ruin my sex life, kill her. If we're divine, can we not choose whom we sleep with whenever we want? Can we not define marriage as we see fit? If we don't like the gender we're born with, of course we can change it. That's what gods do. What I'm arguing isn't that we become selfish or self-absorbed, although those things may be true. I'm arguing that underneath all of the rhetoric and the policies and the press releases and the hype, Western thought has devolved to the point that our kids are being born into a culture that unconsciously assumes every human being is a god. And as such, we have the right to determine life and death, sexuality, gender, and what is right and wrong. Yes, this is very much every man did what was right in his own eyes, but it's not because we are simply rejecting God. It's because he never existed. Thus, we are gods. A strange new world indeed. This war in the West is actually a war over ideas of identity. On one hand, we have a set of people who believe reality is determined by a god of some sort who created the world with purpose and placed us in it. On the other hand, there's a growing number of people who hold to no divine power, believe we're here by chance, and thus assume divine authority and expect everyone else to honor it. Now here's the problem. Human beings make terrible, awful gods. Unmoored from the unconscious ideas that we are created by another, and that we don't assign ourselves purpose, we are simply horrible at attempting to be divine. Think about the characteristics of God and how we, as tiny wannabe gods, are now attempting to claim them. How about the ability to create life? Sure, test tube babies, cloning. Omniscience? Yep, we have the oracle. Knowledge continues to pile up and our ability to access it continues to accelerate. 
The technocrats insist that man's mastery of technology is the pathway to true enlightenment and ascendance. Omnipresence? Well, the world is growing smaller and smaller. Cameras are everywhere. We can be anywhere in the world in a matter of hours, or we can just visit virtually from the comfort of our homes. How about omnipotence? All-powerful. Well, that is an interesting divine characteristic. What we now see in culture are daily attempts to assert power and control over others. CRT, intersectionality, these are currently in the news. They're all about power associated with certain groups. The political landscape, power grab after power grab. And we see the attempts at omnipotence at a personal level. According to one source, narcissists now make up almost 15% of the population. Narcissist is someone who manipulates and controls others for power in the workplace, in the home, and in the church. How about the divine characteristic of being the arbiter of truth? Well, now we have science. Science is all that matters. It's the ultimate source of reality and truth, until we don't like what science tells us, of course, and then we simply redefine the rules. That's what gods do. Don't like your gender? Change it. Don't like your sexuality? Change it. Don't like your spouse or your family? Change it. It's your right, as a god. Gods have the power to change reality to their liking. If this sounds a bit like the Garden of Eden, it is. Adam and Eve wanted to be like God, but here's where it's different. It's not that we want to be like God, it's that he never existed. And so we assume his qualities on a personal level. We are fish who don't know we're wet. If you watch the news or follow stories on the internet, start looking at it through the unconscious idea that we are all tiny gods. If you've ever wondered, why in the world would somebody do that? We now have a good answer. Postmodernism has not only created a world that insists there's no real truth, it's created a world of millions of wannabe gods, all vying for power and position with deadly consequences. And it's one thing to look out there at culture and see how this plays out, but it's another to look at the Christian church, and another to look into our hearts, our soil, to see if these types of dark ideas have taken hold of us. Has the Christian community unconsciously embraced ideas of identity grounded in postmodernism? Have those ideas seeped into our churches, our teachings, our philosophy? Well, those are courageously curious questions, and we're going to look at them in our final episode of Season 2 next time. Thanks so much for listening. For more information, head over to SoilandRoots.org, and you can check us out on Facebook at Facebook.com slash Podcast. Feel free to email me at fish at soilandroots.org, and we'll see you next time.